Welcome everyone to episode two of the Texosity series presented by the 210 Culture podcast. My name is Donna and I am your host. For today's episode, we dive, girl, I mean into a rabbit hole and talk about the most notorious cases that feared residents here in San Antonio, Texas in the 90s. The case of Erica Botello and Heidi Seaman. So I decided to go ahead and talk about these cases because this year marked their 30th anniversary, which passed um, this August, and it sparked my interest as a new and fresh San Antonian. Okay, I've been living here for almost 10 years, but you get the gist. Um, I was not even thought of yet when these uh, cold cases took place. So it's interesting to reflect and research the events leading up to the disappearances of Erica Botello and Heidi Seaman. Both cases seem to have not been related, but this shit is wild because Heidi goes missing August 4th, 1990, and Erica goes missing three weeks later on August 23rd, 1990. And both were found back to back So Heidi was found August 25th of 1990, and Erica was found August 26th, 1990. Fucking mind blown. Excuse me, how are these not related? Tell me. Well, I'm going to tell you. So let's talk about Erica Botello first. Let me just start off. Finding information on Erica Botello was probably the hardest the hardest thing ever. There is little to no information regarding her disappearance. She kind of gets thrown in there whenever there's an article about Heidi Seaman. But, but I was able to find some shit for y'all. I need to stop rambling on and just get to it. Okay, so Erica Marie Botello was born October 22nd, 1982. In a video recently posted by Ken's Five, her relatives described her as, quote, everything a little girl should be. She was a little angel, unquote. Erica and her stepdad were outside their apartment complex home playing when her stepdad went inside for a moment. And when he went back outside, he realized Erica was missing. She had been abducted while playing outside of her apartment complex home on the west side of town on August 23, 1990. The search for Heidi Seaman was currently going on when the Heidi Search Center got word that another child had been abducted. The team started searching for both girls and on August 26, 1990, the search for Erica Botello was called off when Erica's body was found in a storm drain less than a mile from her home. Since I can't find that much information on her, I can't find her cause of death, but it seems to have been strangulation. In a blog I found on tapatalk.com, the blog talks about how, quote, friends of her mother say that she will always wonder who could have strangled her baby unquote. Fuck, man. I I can't imagine how she was found. I can't imagine how the mom must feel. It's probably just like a roller coaster of emotions. You know, at some point you feel like it's your fault and you probably feel like you 
should have done something or wondered if there was something else that you could do. And it was just um, a series of unfortunate events. According to this blog post, a day after Erica's body was found, her stepfather moved out of the apartment and within a month, Erica's mother, Maria Diana Botello, had filed for divorce. Maria has become secluded from mostly everyone, changing addresses and phone numbers frequently, and always keeping her location unlisted. Bob Thompson, the former city councilman in whose district the murder occurred, says, quote, she's living by herself with her three kids, unquote. He helped her get housing away from where the crime scene occurred and even became her divorce lawyer. Bob and Maria kept their friendship and he would counsel her for a while. Bob said that Maria has changed a lot since the murder. Before Erica Botello's death, her stepfather kept Maria secluded from the world, handling everything himself, even the grocery shopping. Quote, she had very little contact with the outside world. Then she had two big impacts on her life. There was what happened to her daughter, plus she got him out of her life, unquote. Side note, if y'all are ever in a type of relationship like that, ladies, get out. G-E-T-O-U-T, get out. You do not need that negativity in your life, ma'am. You are better than this. Better. Let's come back. <laughs> Bob Thompson said, quote, but it dumped her out into the real world. She had a, a time of coping. It was pretty anxious for her. And doing that in public housing certainly wouldn't have been easy for anybody, unquote. Maria's common-law husband, Jesus Rodriguez, remained in the picture for another two years, mainly because of his interest in a lawsuit. One month after Erica Botello's murder, Jesus and Maria filed a personal injury suit on behalf of Jesus Botello, Erica's younger brother, who in 1987, at age three, was badly shocked when his hand brushed against a faulty wiring from a lamppost in the apartment complex's playground. The family alleged the injury resulted in the boy's permanent learning disabilities. That must have been some crazy ass shit for this boy to endure permanent learning disabilities. Let me just tell you, you know, I'm not even, I mean, is that even possible? Like, that's crazy. That's fucking crazy. So imagine all these events just trickling down. You know, you lost your daughter, you're divorcing your husband, and your youngest son or your younger son gets electrocuted really bad that he ends up resulting in um, permanent learning disabilities. Like, that's some wild fucking shit, bro. I swear. Like, I don't know what I would do if I if I was in that circumstance. It'd be terrible. Um, so Maria Diana Botello's best friend lived in the same complex at the time of Erica Botello's abduction. Mona Barrientos was Erica's babysitter from the time she was one year old and watched Erica and her own daughter grow up together. Mona's daughter took Erica's death real bad and frequently visits her grave. Mona says, quote, It's very painful when she sees my daughter. She reminds her of Erica. When I take her to the grave, Erica's mother calls me and says, I see the flowers you left and we talk about it, unquote. Maria would ask Mona what she thought, who could have done it, and what she could have done different. So let's talk about the suspects. So two men were picked up a day after Erica Botello's disappearance. Sherman Bedford III, who was 31 at the time, and Roderick Springs, who was 17, both with a history of paranoid schizophrenia. Bedford later identified 
Kenneth Earl Pope as a third accomplice in the abduction and murder. Kenneth Earl Pope, after spending 24 days in jail, later was publicly exonerated by the district attorney's office. Deputy Chief Albert Ortiz at the time said Pope's involvement in the case was, quote, unfortunate and we're sorry he had to go through that. But I think at the trial that he saw there was no malice and the officer investigated was acting in good faith, unquote. Ortiz to this day considers Bedford and Springs primary suspect as Roderick Springs was the last person seen talking to Erica Botello. Erica's screams was heard, but by the time her stepfather had returned to the window, both were gone. Sexual assault was never established, but never discounted sexual assault as a motive. Ortiz says, quote, money was not a motive. She didn't have any. There were no drugs involved. The problem was with the state of decomposition of the body. We were unable to determine whether a sexual assault took place, unquote. Now, there was a lot of talk, even now, about how Heidi's case was more widely known and more effort was put into her case than Erica Botello's. Albert Ortiz commented at the time and said that, quote, the Northside community stayed together and kept generating leads. We had more to work with, unquote, and said, quote, when we made the arrest of Bedford Springs and Pope, we basically fired off all ammunition we had at the time. And I think the family recognized that, unquote. I have something to say about that because Yes. Even if you Google Erica Botello's name by herself, Heidi Seaman is always just in there. Heidi just comes intertwined with Erica's name on there. And I think at the time, because the 90s was such a, I want to say it was a terrible time, but it was a time where racism was a big thing. Kind of like right now in 2020, how racism is a big thing. It's always been a big thing. Don't get me wrong. But in the 90s, that's when all the riots were happening. That's when everything was going down, kind of like how it's going down here in 2020. Now, because Erica was, she was Hispanic, she was from the West Side, and at the time, there was a lot of conflict between Hispanics and African Americans. So I think there was a lot of witnesses. I'm sure there was, but nobody wanted to step in because nobody wanted to get hurt. You know, it was a violent time back then. You didn't snitch because you were going to get caught. You were going to get the glock glock. That's how it was back then. And it it was scary to say that y'all didn't have as much support, I guess. It's kind of true. I still feel like there was a lot more because that was a Air Force's daughter that they was, it was a military family's daughter. And so it was kind of like, oh crap, this is a big deal because it's a military family. We have to help them out instead of like, oh, hey, we're not going to help out these like poor little Mexican family. So I, I do kind of feel like that. It was in the nineties though. It was a very controversial time, just like it is now, but I'm getting way off topic. So, um, <laughs> Let's get back. So after that, Sherman Bedford since has disappeared from the scene and Roderick Springs, based on a resisting arrest charge, was committed to the San Antonio State Hospital for several months after the murder before being released to his mother. He stayed out of trouble with police until he resurfaced in a terrifying incident January 16, 1994, when he tried to burglarize a 66-year-old woman out of her home and started assaulting her, yelling and screaming at her to let him into her home. The San Antonio Police Department Historical Society posted on their Facebook page January 8th, 
2015, a post regarding Erica Botello's case. On August 28, 1990, Albert Ortiz commented and said police were awaiting a medical examiner's report before announcing Erica's cause of death. She was taken by car from her apartment complex. Quote, we do know for a fact that they rode around town for a long, long time. Unquote. Ortiz said in a press conference that Sunday night, Erica's hands had been tied and her body was partially clothed. At this time, Erica Botello's case is inactive and there are still no leads to who could have possibly killed her. Now let's jump into the case of Heidi Seaman. Heidi Seaman was born November 16, 1978 to parents Air Force Senior Master Sergeant Kurt Seaman and Teresa Seaman. On August 4th, 1990, Heidi was walking home from her friend's house after spending the night at her house. Heidi was not far from her house, so Heidi's friend would walk with her halfway home. When Heidi's friend started walking back to her house, she looked back to see that Heidi was not there anymore. Heidi Seaman was last seen on Stall Road and Willow Run on San Antonio's northeast side. Teresa Seaman in an interview with Ken's Five said, quote, she was supposed to be home by noon and we noticed she wasn't home at 1230. She was always on time. So we knew something was wrong right away, unquote. Teresa then called Heidi's friend's mom to see if she was still there. But the friend's mom had told Teresa that she had left already. Heidi's friend later reported to the police that a shiny red car had passed by her and Heidi three times before the two said goodbye, and Heidi continued home on her own. Heidi's friend was also able to describe what the person looked like and helped police come up with a composite drawing. No one witnessed Heidi's abduction. I don't know why. Like, what the fuck? It was 12.30 in the afternoon. You guys don't go outside no more or what? After Heidi Seaman was reported missing, a massive search began headed by an Air Force co-worker of Heidi's father, Major Robert Eric Duncan. The case of Heidi Seaman prompted for the nonprofit organization, the Heidi Search Center, to be created. The Heidi Search Center assisted families, communities, and law enforcement agencies in the recovery of missing children and adults at risk by advocating community awareness, facilitating search and location efforts. The center eventually closed in 2018 due to a lack of funding. A massive 20-day search ensued statewide involving over 8,000 civilians, military personnel, and first response workers aided by tracking dogs, helicopters, vehicles, and even horses. You know, because Texas, fuck it. According to the FBI, the search for Heidi Seaman was one of the largest and most expensive searches in U.S. history. Never had so many people been involved in a search for one child over an extended period of time. Over 50 miles of yellow ribbon was displayed all around the city and displayed a symbol of the search. On August 11, 1990, the mayor at the time, Lila Crockell, declared, quote, Fine Heidi Day, unquote, an event which over 300,000 citizens of San Antonio came together to search for Heidi Seaman. On August 25, 1990, Heidi Seaman's body would finally be discovered along a rural road near Wimberley, Texas, 60 miles north of San Antonio. Her body was said to be badly decomposed and was found stuffed into two duct tape bound bags. Her mouth was stuffed with a brown sock and taped shut with duct tape. She had been raped strangled and killed before being dumped. The autopsy determined her cause of death to be homicide. Now, 
This is where shit gets wild, y'all. One of the suspects in Heidi Seaman's case was no other than Major Robert Eric Duncan, who was leading the search in the first fucking place. You see, it's always the people close to you, bro. Y'all should know. Y'all should know. Major Duncan became a suspect himself when he made a series of strange phone calls to an investigator's wife who also happened to work as a journalist. According to Patty Hastings, Duncan repeatedly inquired about the investigation, asked if the FBI was involved, and began telling her about strange dreams he was having. Ooh, it's fucking weird. I'm telling you, people that are like so wildly interested in shit like that, like, ooh, bro, they give me the, <laughs> they give me the heebie-jeebies. Uh, Patty died in 2001, but provided a signed statement regarding the phone conversations. Quote, he again began telling me about his dreams, and I again cut him short. Unquote. Patty Hastings wrote, nothing that her editor had begun calling Duncan a, quote, fruitcake, unquote. <laughs> Quote, this line of conversation made me feel very uncomfortable, unquote. According to the Air Force affidavit filed in the case, obtained by Ken's Five at the time, Duncan's car matched the description of the car Heidi's friend had seen prior to Heidi's disappearance. Duncan's appearance also reportedly fit the description of the driver of that car, even Heidi's father. Kurt Seaman suspected Robert Eric Duncan as a suspect. According to reports, Duncan had once told a coworker that he would have his revenge on Senior Master Sergeant Seaman, who he blamed for having been transferred from Randolph Air Force Base. Quote, the one suspect that they did have from the Air Force ISO, it looked like the case they had against him was fairly strong, but the SAPD didn't believe that. I'm not sure exactly why, but what they showed us as far as a witness rights briefing, you know, I don't know that he did it either. I can't say that for sure, but it did sure seem like it, unquote, says Seaman. Seaman filed a murder charge with the Air Force against Major Duncan in 1996, but it did not lead to a conviction due to insufficient evidence. Now, Another suspect in the Heidi Seaman case was Jerry Lee Neighbor. SAPD investigators had targeted Jerry, but his name was cleared when DNA test results came back negative. Little information is available as to why SAPD investigators thought Jerry was a suspect as his criminal record shows only drug convictions, but former lead investigator Jimmy Hogan believes Jerry Neighbor is the killer. Quote, in my mind, it has been and always will be Jerry Neighbor, unquote. According to the Texas Entertainment Magazine, Action, issued October 1996, Jerry Neighbor became a suspect after Austin writer Gary Ledyad was preparing a movie outline on the life of San Antonio's Bobby Kiddeth Thomas, a local character in town. The Heidi Seaman case was a focal point in the Thomas story, and Bobby was indirectly responsible for police honing in on prison inmate Jerry Lee Neighbor as a prime suspect in Heidi's death. Bobby supplied police with the female witness who claims she saw a child fitting Heidi Seaman's description who was bound and gauged in a chair at Jerry Neighbor's apartment shortly after the time and date Heidi disappeared. I can't find any other information regarding if that's true or what happened, 
But as of now, Heidi Seaman's case remains cold and is under the care of the Texas Rangers. Although the Heidi Search Center closed in 2018, the Heidi Project on Facebook still carries on the existing cases of the Heidi Search Center. If anyone has any information, please reach out to the SAPD by calling the Homicide Unit at 210-207-7635 or by calling Crime Stoppers at 210-224-7867. Or you can also send an email to homicide at sanantonio.gov. You can also send tips to the Texas Crime Stoppers and can call the Crime Stoppers hotline at 1-800-252-8477. These cases just rattled up San Antonio as a whole from people that I've talked to who have lived here during that time said that after that, man, nobody wanted to let their kids out to do anything. Parents were scared. Even kids were scared too to even go outside by themselves, having two cases of two totally different, you know, spectrums, being kidnapped and found, murdered and, you know, strangled and just horrible, horrific, made everybody just on edge. It was kind of like, fuck, you know, what, what the fuck is going on? And, and, you know, it, it, it's a sad situation to live in fear because you don't know what's happening or what's going to happen and you don't know when things are going to get better or you know if things are getting worse let me know any other information that you remember from any of those two cases and let me know what you guys want to listen to next also i am super willing to take any suggestions here So thank you so much for listening in and remember to subscribe to 210 Culture on YouTube and be put on notifications so that you will know when the next episode airs. And by that, my friends, that is it. Stay spooky.